Good morning. This morning we are reading from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And if you don't have a Bible, you may grab one from the pew and turn to page 831. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. We've been in the midst of a summer series entitled Exploring Christianity, where we've been looking at various topics various themes that are fundamental to Christianity. Uh, Some of them are are difficult to navigate. Some of them are controversial uh, to many around us. And so we are trying to understand what does Christianity teach about these issues? What does the Bible say about things like the nature of the church and and our identity and our unity and our sexuality and what, and the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? And and doesn't um, doesn't Christ, doesn't um, science disprove Christianity? All these things. And so we're we're trying to look at what does Christianity teach about these issues that there's a lot of questions about. If you're not a Christian, I just want to say I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you joined us this morning. You are welcome here. Listen, we are a church where it's okay to have questions. It's okay to even question your faith. Because we know that questions, if you're wrestling with God's Word, will ultimately lead to truth. And I do pray for you. I've been praying specifically for those of you who are watching, who are here this morning, who are not yet Christians, that, that God would allow you to overcome any obstacle to understanding and believing the central message of Christianity, the gospel. And for our church family, I pray this series continues to strengthen your heart, that it would even change you in light of knowing these truths. Today's topic is admittedly one of the hardest ones in the series, Christianity and eternity. In other words, what does the Bible teach? What does Christianity teach about the afterlife? Heaven and hell. Let me ask you, do you you believe there is something after you die? Do you believe there is something after this life is over? According to recent surveys, most Americans do believe that. One recent survey found 65% of Americans believe that after people die, they go to either heaven, hell, or purgatory. 65%. 
7% believe they go to a different dimension. 6% believe they are reborn. 2% believe that they become ghosts. That's interesting. Not sure what that means. But, and then 20% don't believe in an afterlife or don't know if there is an afterlife. But what that does tell us is that 80% of the people we know believe there is some afterlife, that this life is not all there is. Of course, the challenge is that none of us know by experience what happens after we die. Right? It's not like we can do, uh, uh, like, like t- here's a hypothesis, and then we use a scientific method to figure out what, what happens. We, we can't do that. We don't know. So there's a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty, and a lot of curiosity. There have been many books re- written recently about the afterlife. Did you know that? A lot of books about people claiming to have died and gone to heaven and come back to tell about their experiences. I mean, it's big business now. If you want to make money, claim that you died and went to heaven and came back. Some have admitted they made it all up. Others stand by their story. One book book has, has sold 10 million copies. Only six books in the history of the world have ever done that. Another book was written that, that a, a man claimed to have gone to hell for 23 seconds and come back. There's a lot of interest in this topic. People are, are trying to eat this stuff up because they want to know, right? We believe in an afterlife, but we're unsure about what to expect. Wouldn't it be amazing to know for sure what heaven and hell are like? Wouldn't it be amazing to know for sure where you will spend eternity? You see, the good news this morning is that you don't have to buy any of those books to know. I encourage you not to buy them. You see, the reason many are fascinated with these back-from-the-dead books is because we value eyewitness accounts, right? We want to know not just what this person says or that person says, because they don't know, but if, if you know for sure, I want to listen to you. But we don't, we don't want someone to tell us what they think will happen. We want someone to tell us what they know it's like. If only there was someone who has truly died and truly come back to life and could tell us what it is like. And that's what's so compelling about Christianity. Jesus is the only religious leader who has died and it was verified And he didn't just die for a few minutes or a few seconds and come back. He was laid in a tomb. And three days later, he was walking and talking and eating. And people saw him and touched him. And he tells us, here's what the afterlife is like. You might not like what Jesus has to say. But at least it's more trustworthy than what everyone else is peddling. So let me just ask you this question and then we'll get into the text. If you were to die today, do you know for sure you'll go to heaven? If you were to die today, are you sure you will spend eternity in heaven? That is a serious question, and I hope by the end of this sermon you'll at least have a good answer, if you don't have one already. Lesson number one from this text in Matthew 25, you will live forever. You will live forever. Jesus is talking about the end times here. Ironically, this is nearing the end of his earthly life. And he gives all kinds of parables and teachings here in these last couple chapters of Matthew about what the end will look like and how to be ready for the end. And he says in verse 46, he uses the terms eternal punishment and eternal life. This corresponds with the rest of Jesus' own teaching about the afterlife and really what the rest of the Bible teaches, for that matter. The Bible never teaches annihilation or that we cease to exist after we die. Rather, it teaches that we will live forever. When God first created humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, it says about Adam in Genesis 2-7 that he, he breathed into him the breath of life. God literally breathed his breath, his life into Adam. And, and he became, it says, a living soul. 
We were created to live in communion with God, body and soul. We are embodied souls. Our body is the physical part of us, the part you can see and touch. And we know that, right? We don't need any scientific uh, evidence to prove what we already see. But we also know that there's a part of us that's immaterial, that's not material. The part of us that makes us us, that you cannot touch. And we also know that's true. Because we know that, that you take away right, my dark hair and my tan skin and my big nose and I'm still me. Right? There's a part of me that's me. That's not how I look, but it's who I am. And even though your physical body will eventually wear out, as will mine, your soul will live forever in the afterlife. There are many examples of, why, of how the Bible teaches this. One simple example, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's dying next to two thieves, one of, both ridiculing, and at one point, one turns to him and, 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 and really repents. He turns from his sin. He says to Jesus, simply, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And how does Jesus respond? As this man is dying, he responds to him, today, today you will be with me in paradise. This man was about to die. How could he say that you'll be alive with him in paradise? He's telling this man today, yes, your body will die, but your soul will be alive with me. The teaching of Christianity is that as a human, you are made in the image of God, and as such, you have a soul that will live forever. Let that sink in first. Before we get into heaven and hell, before we get into anything else, let it sink in. God made you to live forever and to live with Him forever. That was His purpose all along. When He created humanity, it wasn't just to live on earth, it was to live with Him in His presence. In verse 34, look at this real quick. To those who enter heaven, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Don't you know that this has been God's plan all along to live with you, to have communion with you forever? By the way, if you're not a Christian, you can step back for a moment. Every other major religion believes in an afterlife. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism. Of course, their understanding of the afterlife is different. Right? Many of them believe in some sort of reincarnation. But the point is, it shouldn't surprise us that most religions believe in an afterlife because there is something deep within us that, that knows we were made to live forever. Whereas Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in our hearts. We know this. There's something in us that senses this life is not all there is. This world is not all there is. That there's something about us beyond just the physical. We, can't, we, we, don't, we don't know all that, that, it, that entails, but we know there's this nagging sense. And so Jesus teaches clearly, you will live forever. Do you believe that? That's my first question. Even if you still have questions, let me just ask you this. What if that is true? What if it's true that you will live forever? Is it not worth pursuing answers to the question? To the question of what happens to you when you die? Lesson number two. Heaven and hell are real. Jesus is very specific about what happens after we die. He says in verse 34, to some... Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, of, the kingdom prepared for you. In other words, eternal life. And to others, verse 41, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I admit that second part is very sobering language. That's the part of this that is so difficult for us. In a, moment, a minute, I'm going to talk about heaven, and nobody is going to push back on me. Nobody here is going to say, that's so unfair. 
that we don't deserve to live forever in a place where there is ever-increasing joy and pleasures forevermore. It's not fair that God is offering us new life where there's no evil and no suffering and everything is restored. No one complains about those. But as soon as I say that the Bible teaches that there's a literal place called hell that Jesus describes here as eternal fire and eternal punishment, that's where we get all kinds of pushback. And maybe you're thinking, what I've heard about Jesus, I thought he was all about grace and love and forgiveness. Yes, Jesus was all about grace and love and forgiveness. But, but listen, I, I encourage you, oftentimes it's because we haven't actually read the words of Jesus. We haven't actually read what he said and he taught. Because if you do, you would realize the reality is Jesus talked about hell more than all the other biblical writers combined. Like in Matthew 13 when Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And like in Matthew 8, where it says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom of hell will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why am I reading these? Because I want you to hear and wrestle with Jesus' own words, not mine. I want you to see this is serious. Hell is described by Jesus as a place of outer darkness, a fiery furnace, a place of weeping, eternal punishment. And some will try to water down this harsh language by, by, by reinterpreting what Jesus means. And you can find all kinds of people, like for instance, a, a, a former pastor named Rob Bell wrote a book, a, a widely popular book called Love, Love Wins, which, which basically says, in the end, God will save everyone. In the end, his love will win. And, and he wrote in other books th this, for instance, quote, for Jesus, heaven and hell were present realities. Ways of living we can enter into here and now. Jesus talked very little of the life beyond this one. End quote. I'm not sure what, 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 what Bible he's reading. Because yes, we are living in a sinful world that can feel like hell. Like hell on earth at times. But in these passages, Jesus is not talking about how, how anger or lust can destroy our relationships. No, he's talking about a literal place of punishment after judgment. So what is hell? I would propose to you, at the basic, most basic level, hell is ultimately the being away from the presence of God. Being away from the presence of God. In other words, if Jesus, who said he is the light of the world then hell is utter darkness. If Jesus is the bread of life, then hell is starvation. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then hell is being utterly alone and lost. Then what is heaven? Heaven is essentially being at home in the presence of God. At home in the presence of God. Let me just read this to you because I think it's important. Revelation 21, 1-5. Listen to what, what John describes as what heaven will be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John is showing us the essence of heaven is God with us. Us in the presence of God, being at home with him. As Jesus described to the thief on the cross, that heaven would be like paradise. Here's my best attempt for for some of you. Heaven for a child would be a lot like Disney World. For a child, not for the parents. We know that's not heaven. But for a child, heaven is like Disney World because Disney World is sensory overload. Right? It's everything a child has ever wanted. Bright lights, superheroes, rides, toys, food. Candy, more candy, more candy. Everything is happy, right? For the parent, they don't, they don't know how much it costs to get there. They don't know how much their one ticket costs them. They don't know what it costs a parent to stand in line and be sweating like you're taking a shower. They don't understand all that. All they know is the Dumbo ride goes up and down, up and down, up and down. And you do a hundred rides a day. At the end of the day, you see the fireworks, which feels like heaven. And it's every day, every single day. It's pretty good to be a kid at Disney World. For us as adults, I think the closest glimpse that we get of heaven, and I've said this before, it's, it's moments that take your breath away. It's when you're listening to a song or a piece of music and, it, and you're, you're caught up into it. It moves you in a, in a special way. Or if you're looking at a piece of art or, or if, you're, if, you're, if you're watching a sunset or if you're holding a newborn child Right? I'm just there. Whatever it is, and you know what it is for you. There's these moments in life where you're like, everything feels right in this moment. Right? Everything feels right. It can't get better than this. I saw a sunset recently. I love sunsets. And I can't get enough of them. And I saw this sunset recently, and it just took my breath away. For, a, for the briefest of moments, I, nothing else in the world mattered. I was caught up in it. The beauty, the colors, the majesty, the sky changing. And it was just me and the sunset for like one millisecond. And then a, a kid is screaming, he put sand in my face! And you know, and then it all shatters away. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, for that moment, I, was, I, I could have died a happy man. Heaven is being at home with God in a new body, on a new earth. It's work without things breaking. Right? We think work is the curse. Work's not the curse. It's work when we work with weeds. Right? It's, it's, it's thorns and thistles, as Genesis says. It's, it's relationships that goes, go, go, gone wrong. Heaven is relationships without any sin or suffering. It's the feeling of an unending sunset. Or as Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings, heaven is like where everything sad becomes untrue. Or as David says in Psalm 1611 about God, in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Do we understand what fullness of joy looks like, feels like? We don't. You know why? Because when you spend one day in heaven, just think about it, when you spend one day in heaven, you're going to feel in that moment, on that day, it can't get any better than this. And then each new day will prove you wrong. Heaven and hell are real. The next question is, how can you know? How can you know where you'll spend eternity? How is that decided? Lesson three, heaven and hell are born out of God's love and justice. This is the the biggest point. We're going to delve into this. Notice how Jesus describes himself in the text. Verse 31, 
when the Son of Man comes in His glory and with all the angels of them, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Verse 34, then the King will say, Jesus describes Himself as a glorious King sitting on the throne of the universe with the authority to judge people of all na- from all nations. This is Jesus' self-description. If you're here and you're thinking, Jesus never claimed to be more than just a moral teacher. This is just one of many examples that really disprove that. Either in verse 34, he calls himself the king, by the way, not a king. He's the king. Either he's the king or he's not. Either Jesus claims the authority to determine where you spend eternity, heaven or hell, or he's not. The question before us is, what's the difference? How is that decided? According to this passage, it has to do with how these people lived. He says the sheep who are separated from the goats, the sheep are those who fed the hungry, welcomed the stranger, visited the needy and imprisoned. Talking about those believers who were suffering at the time. But he says the goats did not do this. And then verse 40, this is important. He says, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, on the surface, it seems like Jesus is saying, you get to heaven by doing good deeds. Is that what he's saying? Is that what, he's, is that what, is that what the conclusion we should come to? And I say, no, absolutely not. Did you notice that Jesus says the people who are welcomed into heaven are actually surprised? Do you notice that? They're surprised that what they did had anything to do with him. They, they say, when did we do all these things for you? Clearly, they were not doing these deeds in order to get to heaven. They were surprised that their sacrificial deeds of love had anything to do with Jesus himself. These Christians were not serving other Christians to get to heaven, no. They were doing this because Jesus had already changed their hearts. Jesus is making the point that if you really believe his gospel, his good news, how can you not be moved by the suffering of those who are, already, who are also committed to the same gospel? How can you not be so moved that you would be compelled to help them, to share with them? Jesus commends them for their sacrificial love toward fellow believers who are suffering in the name of Christ. Now please hear me. Sacrificial love to others is not a means of earning salvation, but it is clear evidence of your salvation. Because this reflects the heart of God. Also, Jesus can't mean that they earn their way into heaven because he welcomes them, notice verse 34 again, to inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. He uses the word inherit. The people listening in first century Israel would have understood completely that an inheritance is not earned but received as a gift. You're simply, you simply receive it because you are the son or daughter of so-and-so and you get that inheritance. No one was thinking, oh, wow, an inheritance is coming. I better be good. No, they hear inheritance and go, wow, all of this is given as a gift? All of this is given freely? Christians inherit the kingdom of heaven not by doing good deeds, but by simply being adopted children of our heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. But for those who reject God as Father and Jesus as Savior, Jesus says there is an eternal punishment for them. And this is the real struggle with hell. We struggle with the idea that hell is God's just punishment for our sin. Why? Why do we struggle with that? Let me, let me try to help us understand. I think one of, there's many reasons. I, did, I, don't have to, I had three and I had to cut two out. One of the biggest reasons we struggle with the idea of an eternal punishment for our sin is our low view of sin. Our low view of sin. Another reason is our low view of God. But let me just talk about the sin for a minute. So you see, we look at our sin and, and we say, well, I never com- I've never committed murder or grand theft right? I, I, I can't be that bad. I certainly don't deserve what Hitler or Stalin deserve. 
Those are really bad people. And they were. We have a really low view of our own sin. We tend to think of sin as simply this, breaking God's law. Breaking God's law, right? Doing something bad. I've told you this story. When I became a Christian as a, as a boy, it was because I, and, and I, I grew up in a great, great home, Christian home. I went to the store and I, I saw bubble yum gum, right? And I love bubble yum gum, cotton candy. And no, I've never seen anybody do this. And I, I don't know how, what made me do it. Well, I know what made me do it. But I grabbed that gum and I put it in my pocket and I walked out. And my dad, when we got in the car, said, I know what you did. Ugh. I broke God's law. I stole. And he made me go in and, and give it back. And it was humiliating, but it was the right thing to do. I broke God's law and I realized that's sin. But, but we need to understand sin runs much deeper than that. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. Or another way to put it, sin is, is at, at its core, it's a rejection of God. And Pastor Brady talked about identity two weeks ago. Go back and listen to that sermon. So good. You see, when you build your identity on something other than God, whether it's your career or your money or your family or your looks or your ability to be liked by others and be accepted by others, whatever it is, whatever you build your identity on, that thing will ultimately enslave you. Why? Because you have to have that thing for your life to have meaning or significance. Any threat to that thing that you've built your identity on, any threat to, to that thing is a threat to your very existence. And so you must excel at your career at all costs. You must have a spouse that loves you. You must have your political views affirmed. Why? Because if you don't, then who are you? You're a nobody. If you don't have that thing, you're a failure. You don't have value. And so you and I will do anything to protect that which we have built our life upon, our identity upon, because to lose that thing is to lose our very self. You see, that is what sin is, ultimately. That is how deep sin runs in our hearts, and it enslaves us. And the fruit of those things, the fruit of that rejection of God and building our identity on something else, the fruit of that are things like anger, and fear, and lust, and bitterness, and moral superiority, and, 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 and demonizing others on the other side. Those are just the fruit of our sin, and those things will ultimately destroy us. You see, people have this warped view of hell, I think, from our culture, from the pagan culture, not from Christianity, this warped image of God throwing people into the, to hell, into this pit, and they're climbing out. No, please help me. And God says, no, it's too late. You had your chances. I'm not letting you out. That's the image, honestly, most of us have. That is not biblical. That is not biblical. It's not Christianity. In fact, it said, look at what it says in verse 41. Who was hell created for? Who was it prepared for? It is prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see what that means? You see, listen to the words of Jesus. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. In fact, Peter says that God desires that all would come to repentance and faith in him. But hell is a place for people who have rejected God, built their identity on something other than God, and that going on forever. That's what it is. Think of hell as being a place for those who have rejected God, who built their identity on God and said, I don't need God in this life. It's simply God saying, okay, that'll go on forever. Here's how C.S. Lewis said it. Quote, In the long run, the answer to all of those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. He's saying the answer is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their sins, past sins, and at all costs to give them a fresh start? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? They do not want to be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. 
You see, when someone rejects God, I don't need God. I want this thing to be my identity. I want this thing to satisfy me. I, I'm in charge of my life. Ultimately, hell is, is God saying, I, I give you over to that which you've already committed to forever. Lewis continues, quote, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. End quote. You see, the doctrine of hell helps you understand your own heart, your own sin. And it helps us understand God's justice for sin. That God's justice is not, I'm sending you there. It's, you have chosen this, Romans 1. Here, even in this life, when people continue to sin, God simply says, I'll give you over to the effects of that sin. And ultimately, that's what hell is. God saying, I'll give you over to what you've already chosen. But it's not just enough to know our hearts. You say, okay, well, we know our hearts. We, we recognize the horrors of our sin. Well, then what's the antidote, right? Is there a vaccine for this? This is pretty bad. How do we find the answer? How do we have a solution? Is there a power that can change these sinful hearts? And the good news this morning, the good news of Christianity is, yes, there is a power, there is a person, there is something that can change our hearts, and it is this, it is the love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice twice in this passage, Jesus refers to true believers as the righteous. Verse 37, and the righteous will, say, will answer Him. Verse 46, verse 46, the righteous will enter into eternal life. How can they be righteous? How can, they, how can Jesus call them righteous when we know from the, all of the, bi, the biblical teaching that there are none righteous, no, not one? Right? We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. So how does Jesus declare them righteous? He must be alluding to a righteousness that has been gifted to them, that has been imputed to them. A righteousness that was not their own, but that, was in, that they inherited, so to speak, that they were given, and that's exactly what Jesus came to do. You see, only God's love can transform your heart from guilty to righteous. Only God's love can rescue you and I from our fears and give you an identity that cannot be shaken. But in order to change our hearts, in order to rescue us, Jesus had to do the unthinkable. Jesus was God incarnate, meaning he was God in the flesh. He never sinned. He never disobeyed mom and dad. He never stole a pack of gum. He never built his identity on anything other than the Father's view of him. He was perfect. And yet he's crucified on a cross. Why? Why? What did he do to deserve it? He didn't do anything. To deserve it. He went to the cross to take your place and my place. You see, Jesus had to experience all of God's justice against your sin so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus didn't just suffer. I think we, we, we think of on Easter, Jesus suffered so much physical and emotional agony, right? And you watch the movies, you see all the beatings and the lashings, and he's a bloody mess, and he was. But listen, we cannot, we cannot even fathom the depth of spiritual agony that Jesus experienced on the cross. It is unimaginable for us when Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening there? I thought he and the Father were one and they are one. But on the cross, something happens that honestly, it's hard to put into to, to human language. But on the cross, Jesus experienced the horrors of hell firsthand. For the first time and the only time, Jesus was experiencing the absence of God. Which is what hell is. No peace, no intimacy just isolation and disintegration and shame and guilt. And we know, we know this. We know that the deeper the relationship, the deeper the pain when it's lost, right? My wife lost a dear friend this week tragically. 
There's a lot of pain for us this, this past week. A lot of tears. And yet, but the, but the, for the spouse of our friend, an even deeper pain, an even deeper wound. Because the, the greater the relationship, the greater the depth of love, the deeper and more agonizing the loss of love. We know this. Jesus lost the love of his father. The most intimate and fullest and purest love. This devastating and horrific loss of love is greater than anything you and I would experience in an eternity in hell. That's what was lost. That's what was broken. We can hardly fathom it. And I may not even be doing a good job at describing. Now we can appreciate why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was sweating drops of blood just thinking about the cross. Why did he do it? Because someone was making him? No. He did it because he loves you. He took what you deserve so that he could give you what you don't deserve. You say, that's not fair. That's not fair that Jesus would die for somebody else and take their judgment, their punishment. That's not fair. And I want you to say, I think you're right in one sense. From our sense of fairness, it's not fair. It's not fair that God, the king of the universe, the judge, the shepherd, the great creator, it's not fair that he would have to become a little baby. It's helpless. That's not fair. It's not fair that you have to be born in a stable with animals. That's not fair that he would have to suffer all the things that we suffer as humans. You're right, it's not fair that he would be humiliated and stripped and abandoned and rejected and abused and beaten and cursed. It's not fair as we understand fairness. But as Isaiah tells us, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God is operating on a playing field we cannot even fathom. You see, unless you believe in hell, I propose you'll never fully appreciate how much Jesus loves you. As I heard one pastor put it, and it really just spoke to my heart in ways when I, when I first realized the, this truth. You, you see, don't you say, if you say, I believe in a God of love, which so many people around us, at Grace Gives, we're talking to people, washing their cars, I believe in a God of love, not a God of judgment, not a God of justice. Here's what I would say. If you believe in a God of love, but not a God of justice, you're making God less loving. You're making God less loving. You say, I believe in a God of love. I don't believe in judgment. I don't believe in hell. Then let me ask you, that God, what does it cost him to love you? What does it cost him? And if you say nothing, he just loves me. He loves everyone. He loves everybody. Fine. I'm sure that I can appreciate that kind of love. I'm sure that that kind of love for a God who just loves everybody, doesn't do anything to show you his love, he just loves you, I'm sure that that can, that can make an impact on your heart. But here's what I know. That kind of love can't change your soul. That kind of love can't transform you into a new person. That kind of love can't melt away the sin in your heart and give you a new nature. Only a sacrificial love can do that. We know this intuitively. We know this. If you're saying, I don't know that that's true. You know how I know you know this? Because every movie you love, every story you love, every great narrative that you love of, of someone winning the day, of a hero stepping in, we never say to the hero, oh, look, they didn't have to sacrifice everything. Woohoo! she's awesome. No way. Why is she so great? Why is he so great? Why do we love these heroes? Because they had to sacrifice sometimes their very lives to rescue those in need, right? That's why we love those stories. Because that kind of love resonates in our hearts. We know that's the greatest kind of love. We know that sacrificial love is the greatest and purest love. And only sacrificial love from a God who is can prove to you once and for all that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Only a God of sacrificial love
who was plunged into hell for you. Only that kind of love can prove to you once and for all how much he really does love you and what he would go to bring you home into his family. No, I would argue hell proves we have a God of love. And Christian, if he did that for you, if he gave himself up for you, if he did all of this for you, will he not also, as, as Romans 8 says, if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all things? If he would do the greatest thing, will he not take care of every lesser thing in our lives right now? You say, why are we talking about the doctrine of heaven and hell? Because it has, it has relevance right now. If he took care of that... If he moved the biggest rock in history, can he not move the pebbles we're dealing with now? Can you not trust him now? Can you not follow him now? And can you not have hope that one day he will lead you home to be with him forever? Right? Bound for glory, we sang. Because the resurrection of Jesus, not just that he died for us, but he rose from the dead and he rose victorious and he rose bodily and he says to all of those who will trust in him, not do good things, but that will believe in him as Savior and receive him as Savior, he says, I will give you resurrection life. I will give you new life. And we sang all our pain, hurt and shame, gone when Jesus calls my name. I just end with the last, that question I started with. Do you know for sure that after you die, you will go to heaven? You say, you're just fear-mongering. No, I'm not. My, I didn't plan for, for this week when we, I knew I was preaching on this. I did not plan for our friend who was 37 years old to be killed in a car accident tragically. I didn't plan for that. I'm not trying to fear-monger. Please hear my heart. I love you. I'm trying to be as clear and earnest as I can. This could be your last day on earth. It could be mine. What then? Do you know? I'm saying you can know. Jesus is saying you can know. You can know for sure. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus that he died for you, that he rose for you. That's how you can know. John said at the end of his gospel that he wrote the gospel of John. He wrote that account. He said, these things have been written that you might know that you have eternal life. I talk to so many people who, who hope they're going to get to heaven, who hope they make it, and, and the Bible is simply saying loudly, you can know. It's not arrogant to know if your knowing is based on what Jesus did for you. It's humility because you're trusting in him and not in yourself. I'm saying to all of those of you who may be wondering, may be wrestling, put your faith in Jesus today. Trust him by faith alone in his work for you. Embrace him as your savior. And the stunning promise of the gospel is that when you trust in Christ, he declares you righteous. He sets his love upon you and he promises to be with you moment by moment, day by day. And then one day, whenever that day is, whether it's the day you take your last breath on earth or whether it's the day that he chooses to return, one day Jesus will say this to you and I, come, same thing here, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come. That's the welcome we're going to receive. That's what we can know for certain through faith in Jesus as Savior. Let me pray. Father, this teaching is hard. It's, it's confusing. We admit this. God, I confess, I don't know all there is to know. There's still many questions I have, more questions that came up even as I was studying this. I'm sure there are questions in every heart here, every heart that's listening. 
But God, in spite of the questions, I pray that you would reveal yourself so that what they do know, what was made clear, they would be able to trust and rely upon. Give us an assurance that because of what Jesus did, that he took our sin, he took our judgment, there is no judgment to be paid for us. There is no verdict, no guilty verdict for us because he already took the guilty verdict. So for every believer, encourage them this morning. Remind them of the implications this has for today and every day in this life. Oh God, give us a living hope that one day soon you will take us to be with you. We know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We long for heaven to be at home in your presence, God. To see you face to face. To have all the questions melt away and just to know that that sunset, that piece of music, that art, that newborn child, that wedding day, that whatever it is, that that fleeting moment will now be an eternity except it gets better and better every moment. And God, I pray for every person who can hear my voice right now, who doesn't know you. Maybe they've been wrestling. Maybe they've been searching. Maybe they haven't. They're just here because someone invited them. But I pray that you would right now open their hearts, give them a desire, a willingness to maybe just take one step closer, ask the next question, seek the next answer, look for the next truth to understanding who you are. But maybe there are some right now who would say, I need to trust Christ. I don't know the answers, but I know enough to know that I need Jesus to be my identity, my value that your love is so compelling that they would give their life to you. I pray that someone right now in their heart would trust Christ as Savior. Lord, as we move to this time of communion, remind us yet again of the preciousness of that which you did for us, that we might be with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.